Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. It's sunny, O'Toole, finally. <laughs> Spring is here. Spring has sprung. Okay. <laughs> got so many exciting things happening. So many, so many. Can we just start? You had a great post this week about Shonda Rhimes' new book, Year of Yes. Well, it's so funny that you should bring that up. And thank you for doing it. I did review it in the written uh, reviews that we have on our website. For me, this book had so many lessons about saying yes and saying no, about friends, not friends, about self-discovery, and especially about my beloved Christina Yang. (laughs) Who knew? That's Shonda. Shonda's story, she feels that her development as a human being, et cetera, closely mirrors Christina Yang. And that she really wrote that character for her own growth. And maybe that's why I love her book so much. I feel like she did write that for me as well. And it's a really, really good book. O'Toole, are you going to read it? I am definitely going to read it. I have it on hold at the library. And speaking of Shonda Rhimes, we had quite a few comments this week from our listeners asking if we (laughs) watched Scandal this week. I missed it, Hollister. Did you see it? I did not see it, but I did read about it also. You know, Scandal had a very, very big week. Yeah, they said Scandal kind of morphed into how to get away with murder. Turn your head a little to the left. Yeah. I think people should be warned. I don't know that that viewer discretion warning suffices. One of our listeners said it was worse than the Hurt Locker when that man's face exploded inside his oh, helmet. Really? Yeah, so, you know, well, Shonda Rhimes, she, um, that was quite a turn there for Olivia Pope this past well, week. Well, you know, it's funny because, um, you know, when she killed off... Yes, Patrick Dempsey's yes, when she character. Killed, I mean, I, she killed off, <laughs> yes. When she killed off McDreamy, by the way... The the violent reaction to that was not just on the fact that she killed him. It was the way she killed him. It is a violent moment on TV that I even had to turn away. And I love Silence of the Lambs. So, um, so you know, she has that she has that in her. You go, girl. And maybe this new Shonda, after her year of saying yes, which is the name of her book, um, maybe that Shonda has you know emerged with a little bit of. Uh, of violence in her. You go, girl. <laughs> now, speaking of Shonda Rhimes' book, guess who said it is one of her favorite books? And here's your clue. The person who said that has 5.7 million followers on Instagram. It was me. <laughs> Why, yes, it was. It was you, Hollister. And it was also... Um, I don't know who else... I, okay. don't, I don't care if anyone uh, yes, else you loved do. it okay, me, but who was who, Okay, who here's was your it? second clue. It was the actress okay. who was chosen to read the audiobook version of Harper Lee's Go Set a Watchman. Huh. I give up, O'Toole, oh, great one. Who is it? Witherspoon. Oh, wow. And I wanted, well, she loved it, too. She oh. loved it, too. And I wanted to give her a shout-out. The Wall Street wait, Journal. Wait, 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 mm-hmm. wait. When I talked to you last week about this book, mm-hmm. and after you read the editor's version of my my review... I don't remember you saying you were going to read it. Now, all of a sudden, Reese Witherspoon. Oh, no, Hollister. Wait, is if, that why you... Did you miss the part where right after you posted your article about Year of Yes, I put it on hold at the library? Hollister, uh, okay. I, I follow you're right. you. You're right. You're right. You're right. Okay. 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 There was a very interesting article about Reese Witherspoon last week in the Wall Street Journal about how she has become such a literary tastemaker in Hollywood. And yep. I loved this article. Hollister, you know how in our podcast about Gina Davis, we spoke a lot about her work with her Gender Institute trying to make female characters in Hollywood scripts 
on par with the male characters. And, I do remember that, yes. Yep, and Reese Witherspoon, she was reading yet another script offered her, and she said, boy, all the female characters in this script are so bland. They're all girlfriends and wives and bland ones at that. And she said, you know, why is it that in books, female characters are so much more 3D? And she has started her own independent production company, which will take books and adapt them into movies. Well, you know, it's funny because we have an, you know, we have a partnership with Lit Lovers Mm -hmm. and Lit Lovers, you know, they have, you know, close to 500,000 unique users a month on Lit Lovers, which is really a book club uh, website. And we find that they drive a tremendous amount of traffic to screen thoughts when we do our reviews of books turned into movies. And it just goes to show that, you know what, none of these, you know, books are, uh, please let books never go away. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if a, if, if somebody reads a screenplay, the depth of background is not there the same way it is in a book. And so I totally, I, you, I think she's absolutely on the money. I do. Well, you know, it's so smart for two reasons. One is the characters are so much more complex, but the other reason is that Hollywood is so risk adverse. So they want to base their movies on material that's already been proven. Books, video games, graphic novels, plays, musicals, comic books. So when you think about some of these movies that do so well, they already have a following. But I was amazed by this. The very first two books she optioned, before they were even published, were wild and Gone Girl. So after Hello. she, I mean, can you imagine that's her first two out of the gate? They both went on after she optioned them to hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time. And then they got three Oscar nominations. They grossed more yeah. than half a billion dollars. Very impressive. That reads Witherspoon. You know, she's a smart girl, but I can't, you know, here's where where it's sort of, I can't lose when she got pulled over for a D-Way. I know, that was and a low she moment. Said, you know what? And I know we don't usually go here, but I can't lose the moment when she turns to the camera and says, do you know who I am? And maybe we all have many sides to us, but there is that part of toughness that maybe is one of the reasons why she, uh, you know, she can look at this stuff and get it right. So here's a couple books that Reese Witherspoon's company has already optioned. She's got 16 projects based on books right now. One of them coming out is Leanne Moriarty's Big Little Lies. I loved that book. It's okay, gonna, I'm going to read that next. Yeah, I'm reading it next. It's going to be an HBO series starring Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, Laura Dern, and Shailene Woodley. You can't beat that. No, you, know, you cannot beat that. She's going to do Jessica Knowles' Luckiest Girl Alive. And one more, just to mention Second Life by S.J. Watson. He's the author who wrote Before I Go to Sleep, which was Molly, who runs Lit Lovers. That was um, one of her favorite books, which had been turned into a movie starring Nicole Kidman and Colin Firth a couple years ago. Interesting. Very good. Very good. Okay, so wrapping all of that up, can we move to a couple of things? Now, I watched the last episode of People vs. O.J. Simpson, oh. and I and I just read it. was the most watched cable show of 2016 so far. It averaged 7.5 million viewers per episode. What did the actual trial average back in the day? Uh, I don't know. You know, that's such a good question, but I have no idea. But what's interesting to me about it is I was somebody who did follow the trial 25 years ago. And actually, I was on the news a bit. I was uh, I'd started the Women's Resource Center in New York, and we had just finished a huge domestic violence um, investigation for Mayor Dinkins at the time. 
the day they went in to deliberate, I, I went and had lunch with my friend Paula in Westchester because nobody thought we were going to be called to the studio because they thought it was going to take days to go through this. Four hours later, we turn on the TV at her house. There it was. And I remember we both cried. And here's what I remember in that moment, which now has much better clarity for me, is I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out how anybody could think he wasn't guilty or how anybody could vote that way or why people were celebrating in the streets. I was just befuddled and very sad because I was so confused. Okay, flash forward 25 years. And the one thing that watching this trial has done for me it's, it's allowed me to understand the other point of view. And again, I don't want to get into the politics of it, but there's nothing like distance for a little perspective. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, while, while I, I think that parts of the show American were a little, story. you know, they dragged a little bit, whatever, but, but overall, for those of us who lived it 25 years ago, what a great way to sort of put it to bed if if there's a way to say that you know and the only other strong thing that i want to say about it is that um i never realized you know that these these people were sequestered for nine months the jury they were less free than oj oj got to meet with whomever he wanted he got to watch tv at will he got to you know he was freer than those 12 jurists. So I sort of have a new understanding and respect for what they must have gone through sitting back there. So more power to them. And if you haven't seen it, you should go ahead and download it and watch it. You know, one thing that always struck me as odd is O.J. Simpson was a neighbor of Monica Lewinsky's out in Brentwood. And I thought that street must have had more paparazzi on it in the 90s than any (laughs) other street in America. Exactly. Um, You know, Hollister, I wanted to ask you about the acting. I haven't seen the series yet, but I've heard amazing things about Sarah Paulson, who played Marsha Clark. And I remember her back in the day, she was on that TV show, Jack and Jill, which was one of Amanda Pete's oh, first TV I shows. I remember that show. Right. Yeah. I don't remember her, but I remember that show. She is very good. I have left a grand jury to make this call. Where is your client? Marsha, I'm sorry, but he's with a few doctors. He's very depressed. Yeah, well, he should be depressed. He killed two people. He's going to prison. Now, what is your location? You look at the cast. You have David Schwimmer. Okay, now, you know, frankly, last time I Ross? saw him was in Friends. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, Travolta. You've got Cuba Gooding Jr., who, by the way, lost his voice. I mentioned this in an early podcast. He lost his voice, and they're not sure he's going to get it back from all the yelling that he did on, on set. Really? Which is amazing that he didn't lose it when he did Jerry Maguire. And Nathan Lane, who I love in anything. Mm-hmm. So Nathan Lane, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Cuba Gooding Jr., brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Travolta overplayed it. He overplays it. He definitely overplays it. He played Robert Shapiro. Oh, yeah. I'm telling you, O'Toole, it's like... I don't know. I don't know. It's almost too much. It's almost like he saw him too much or, and maybe that was Shapiro, but I saw Shapiro a lot on television back then. And I I think, I think uh, Travolta was the only one who didn't step to the plate, but it's very, very, very well acted, extremely well acted. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. And then I I certainly want to end our intro stuff with, I I watched the last episode of Billions, which I know you don't even want to talk about. You don't want to see because you're that person. (laughs) Okay, but I'm loving Billions. Talk about guilty pleasures. That's mine. Although Shonda Rhimes, my new best friend, she says she doesn't like the term guilty pleasures. Like she doesn't think that they should be guilty of their pleasures. But okay. Would I have given a break to some drug dealer? No. So why would I give one to a businessman? America used to salute the guy in the limousine. 
but now they throw eggs at it. When did it become a crime to succeed in this country? So the last episode of Billions, okay, now I said at the beginning of Billions when I first talked about it a couple weeks ago that um, I thought the show would grow, and it did. It, it, it really does. The last half of Billions is very, very strong. And there's a scene in the last episode of the first season between um, Paul Giamatti's Chuck Rhodes and Damien's, Damien Lewis's uh, Bobby Axelrod that debates the forces of good and evil in finance in America. Um, and then it, it, you could take that form. It's four long minutes and you could take that out and you could play it on its own anywhere. And it's right up there. Now I know you're going to drop over dead here, but it's right <laughs> up there with attention. I know it's going to draw. It's right up there with why is America the greatest nation in the opening scene of Sorkin's newsroom? It is. Really? It's that good. It's that good. Yes. So <laughs> the wow. interesting thing is both characters are both good and both characters are also evil. Well, see, Reese Witherspoon would be happy with those characters because she said that's one of the faults with the female characters that are written so often is that they're too likable. She well, doesn't mind go. if they're the dark way, or flawed. These guys are both these guys are both likable and vulnerable and they're also both very unlikable. So we, we can use the hashtag, hashtag likable, unlikable. I like it. Okay. <laughs> oh, you're so clever. Okay, now let's get to the meat and potatoes. I'd like to have sex with you. Me too. I just can we do it in the morning? You know what? Sexual rain checks are abusive. What? actually incompatible now. No, we're just stressed. Okay. Because I still fancy you. I very fancy you. Okay, so let's start with Catastrophe Season 2. We've never done this before. We are going to talk about the second season of a show that we actually reviewed the first season of, and it's Catastrophe 2. You know who posted on Instagram that it's their new obsession? Who? Reese Witherspoon. Oh, you know, I'm over Reese. Get moving on. <laughs> There's one moment in this, in the second season, it's in the second episode, and they're at a movie theater, and she's just been rejected by another mother who she wanted to be BFFs with. One of the mombies, as she calls them. I loved that yeah, phrase. And, yeah, and they see her at the movie theater with her husband, mm -hmm. and he says, I'm going to go tell her, you know, she's an idiot because you're the best. And he goes over. It's so painful to watch because it's obviously they're looking at him like he's truly nuts, and so would I if someone had ever done that to me. But <laughs> but I loved it, and I loved the way she looked at him sort of, happily yearning and thankful that he's on her team and oh my god did you not love that Hollister, scene it's so funny as i was watching that i thought of you in that scene i thought hollister's gonna love this because raunchy as this show can be and it can be body yeah i'm surprised you there, love it so much with there, all its sex and there's born. something very romantic about this show where that was oh really such a chivalrous it's, act and i thought okay you know how you've said that you love the movie the bodyguard i was like he is such a strong wingman in this oh. scene <laughs> I thought Hollister's going to love this. That scene, by the way, is exactly what I was talking in The Bodyguard. Nothing bad will ever happen to you because I'll make sure that even if you're crossing the street, nobody's going to run you over. Like, <laughs> you know, that's that moment when you know that somebody is willing to humiliate themselves to the nth degree mm -hmm. just because it's supposed to make you feel. I, I just, I love that. I 
I think the humor in this, which, by the way, takes you to the brink of I cannot watch this one second more. Yep. I think it's just, it's so brilliant. It really, really is. You know, Sharon Horgan called humor their secret weapon. And she has said in interviews that because Rob Delaney's character is such a nice guy on some levels, they can get away with a lot. But I am amazed. We mentioned this in our first podcast. Not only do they star in the show, but they write the show. They are the only two writers. They're heavily involved in casting, production, editing. They've brought so much of their own lives into it. There is an yeah. emotional honesty in this show that is okay, so commendable. Okay, don't you think they're both going to leave their? Don't you think they're both going to leave their spouses <laughs> and get married? I mean, seriously. It has to happen. All right, now, about, by the way, I think that one, you cannot talk about this show without talking about the use of laughter in the show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think probably more than any comedy series right now, the use of where they put the laughter and the humor is just right on the money because, again, you can't stand it. It's like they've tech, they've dialed it up to 10 on the I'm going to electrocute you scale and you can't take it. (laughs) And then they drop in that humor and it is so brilliant. And actually I went and looked it up and NPR's Linda Holmes. Do you ever listen to her stuff? I haven't. No. Well, she published this uh, analysis of the use of laughter on the show. And here's what she said. The frequent deployment of in-scene laughter in catastrophe solves a common problem with relationship comedies which is their tendency to feel transactional. People seem to be performing the relationship more than being in it, and contrary to every close relationship, romantic or otherwise, scenes generally either sit on one spot to make a point or they move along a straight line. Either any given scene is loving or it's playful or it's an argument or it's a scene where people make up according to predictable rhythms of apology and forgiveness. This transcends all of that, in my opinion. I think she said it really well. When they're in bed and they've had a fight and he says, don't come anywhere near me. Mm-hmm. And then they just show her face and she just starts to laugh, you know, smile, mm-hmm. even though he doesn't know she's smiling. It's weaving it all in one in one breath rather than one scene's this and another scene's that and another scene's that. In last week's podcast, when we were talking about a variety of sitcoms, and you said the purpose of the laugh track used in so many American sitcoms is that it triggers a psychological response where when you hear it, you have to laugh with them. I was thinking while watching Catastrophe that when Sharon Horgan laughs, I have to laugh with her. It definitely triggers that same psychological response. And you're right. It makes that roller coaster ride much more doable. Okay. They bring in loving and they bring in playful. They bring in an argument and they bring in making it up all in one moment. And mm-hmm. I think they do it better than any any other comedy series on TV I've ever seen. I mean, in season two, they deal with such heavy themes as dementia, postpartum depression, alcoholism, drug addiction. And, and a yet, dead dog. Don't forget the dead and dog. A, and a dead dog. And you're right. Humor is definitely their secret weapon. It's amazing to me because they can discuss topics that I find so taboo. I usually only would discuss these things with, say, my hairdresser. You know, for example, (laughs) the character of Chris, who admits that he really wants to have sex with a tranny. No, he doesn't say a tranny. He says a woman with a penis. Well, there you go. Okay, but by the way, that's that's important. That's important because that's exactly what she's talking about. That's exactly what Linda Holmes is talking about. The way he puts it out there, it's in your face, you know, funny, not funny. 
um, you know, smash not sm- I mean, it's just right out there. So I think their use of language is unbelievably good. Speaking really of good. which, the name of their new baby, Mueren, I thought that was so <laughs> hilarious. When he that, turns to her and says, I oh, can't pronounce my baby's name. It was so funny. And there's <laughs> Carrie Fisher playing his mother, calling the baby Moron. And Sharon Horgan saying, you know, can anyone pronounce my baby's name? Not you people, the other people, meaning the non-Irish people. I was yeah. just laughing out loud. I know. It's great. It's absolutely great. I just realized who she reminds me of. You know the actor Gene Wilder? My baby doesn't look like Gene Wilder. They start season two three years after season one ended, and I don't like that transition. I want. I don't know why they needed to do that other than she has a second baby, but I'm not sure they needed to do that, and I, I miss. I want to know what happened during those three years. It would be great to know. In our last podcast, we were talking about originally they were going to start the show where they're already married with kids, but the more they discussed their backstory, they thought we should probably explain how we met. So season one turns into that backstory. Right. You mentioned in our last podcast that what inspired Rob Delaney to make this series was the movie Before Midnight with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. And I think this is such an interesting fact. That trilogy, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy have co-writing credits for the second and third. It's only the second and third installments that were nominated for Oscars for Best Screenplay. And I thought that goes to show the strength of when you have the male and female characters so invested. I wanted you to say something romantic in your book, okay? You are the mayor of Crazy Town. Do you know that? You are. This is how people start breaking up. Oh, my God. I assure you, that guy you vaguely remember, the sweet romantic one that you met on a train, that is me. Hollister, as if Sharon Horgan and Rob Delaney were not busy enough writing Catastrophe and starring in Catastrophe and promoting Catastrophe, did you know that Sharon Horgan is the creator behind the new HBO series Divorce? Starring Sarah Jessica Parker. No. Wait, is that out yet? It's not out yet. It's supposed to be coming out. It's on my list. And I so I usually get a pop-up when it's coming out. But yeah, I didn't know that. So she is the writer and creator of Divorce. That is one busy person. Yeah, and she looks great. I love the way she looks. I love the way she flips her hair. I love the way she does everything. And I love her couch in her apartment, which is no longer because they moved to a better house. (laughs) So speaking of HBO, yes, this brings us to our, our next little feature, the documentary, Nothing Left Unsaid, Gloria Vanderbilt and Anderson Cooper. I just always remember my mom having this kind of look behind her eyes. It was almost like a kind of a, a far away look. I mean, it, it, it's, it's very sad to me that, you know, all these things that she sort of wanted are so, in some ways, so simple. Growing up, It didn't really have any reality for me, that whole Vanderbilt side of the family. My mom has lived many different lives and has sort of inhabited many different skins. She's got this public face, but the reality of her life is so different than what the public face is. These will be fascinating to read. All our secrets. (laughs) And this is what he looked like when you first met him? I knew him for a week and married three weeks later. Really? How old were you? 20. Oh, yes, with my mother. People were so fascinated with this family that apparently had everything. I never felt that I belonged. You know, I felt I was an imposter. Anderson Cooper's the one who put this together 
and he really has not, uh, he's not gone deep enough. And, you know, he's way too nice to her about some of the follow-up questions that don't take place, I think. But at the same time, a, a walk through the park with, with Gloria and with Anderson Cooper about this amazingly tragic and full and determined life that this woman has led is certainly worth the time. Would you agree? I really enjoyed this documentary. I saw it at the 33rd annual Miami International Film Festival. And I have to give a shout out to two people behind the creation of this documentary. The first is Sheila Nevins, who has produced over one thousand documentaries. It is amazing to me if a documentary gets distribution, take a look and you'll probably see Sheila Nevins's name on it. She has won more primetime Emmys than any other person in the history of Emmys. She's won 29 individual Emmys. Wow, you go, girl. Absolutely I know, right? excellent. Yeah. And the other person who really needs a shout out is the director, Liz Garbus. She's been nominated for two Oscars. And Hollister, do you remember in our Oscars podcast, we said of the 42 or so films that were nominated for Oscars this past year, only two of them were directed by women. Yes, One I was that. France's submission for Best Foreign Language Film, and the other was the documentary What Happened, Miss Simone. That was directed by Liz Garbus. And I'm feeling good. Now, I don't know if you remember or not. I mean, actually, I'm not even sure you were born, but Little Gloria Happy at Last was a book written by Barbara Goldsmith that came out and it became, it was sort of like Fifty Shades of Grey popular where you never, you couldn't get on the subway without seeing somebody read it. People were talking about it at dinner parties and it talked, it was the early part of Gloria Vanderbilt's life, long before the jeans, by the way. I said, maybe it wasn't before the jeans. I don't remember. But I can tell you that, you know, she was the talk of the town when Barbara Goldsmith's book came out. And, you know, having read that book, it's very helpful because when you watch the documentary, if you've read the book, you know the questions that are not asked. You know, I think when you're doing a documentary, especially someone like Anderson Cooper, who certainly can question along with the rest of them... (laughs) in terms of putting people on the spot. He doesn't put her on the spot even once. And maybe that's a kindness you do to somebody who's 92 years old who's had a very rough life. And is your and we mother. Should be grateful f- <laughs> yeah, well, we should be grateful for whatever time she did give us on the screen and whatever she was willing to tell us. But it has to be something that people look at and recognize that this is a very, very surface documentary. And it can't really be a reflection of her entire life because it's missing a lot, a lot. I thought it packed so much in. So, for example, the fact that Gloria Vanderbilt is now 92 years old and has been in the public's eye for 82 years, that's got to set some kind of record. I was amazed at how many things I didn't know about her life. I knew about the genes. I knew that she was one of the Vanderbilts. You know, when you're talking about that kind of money, where Cornelius Vanderbilt had more ships than the U.S. Navy and more money than the U.S. Treasury, and I knew she was Anderson Cooper's mother, and that's all I knew. So for someone like me watching it, I think it's a great reminder that no matter how much money you have, 
the tragedies in your personal life can be just as huge. And, you know, at heart, I think everybody really seeks the affection and approval of their parents. And I had no idea her father died when she was 18 months old. They sent her to the Breaker's Mansion, which was one of their homes. Oh, yeah. Well, that's why, little, yeah, Little Gloria Happy at Last, you should read the book because it goes into it in much greater detail. And look, she, she clearly was damaged in a way in her childhood that made it very difficult for her to be anything other than self-absorbed in her adulthood. And I get that. But I do think that if you're going to call something a documentary rather than a walk with my mom or a remembrance or I mean, I don't know what you call it, but you got to ask some of those secondary questions. And yet Anderson Cooper has said that he didn't even know about his mother's dating life until he started working on this documentary. So I think anyone interested in Hollywood, for that reason alone, the fact that when Gloria Vanderbilt was still in high school and went to Hollywood when she was 17, the first person she dated was Errol Flynn. Later, when she wanted to have children with Anderson Cooper's father, her fourth husband, the fact that it was Charlie Chaplin and Una Chaplin, who helped strap drugs that were not yet legal in America to her person in Switzerland. So she she already had, you know, you know, she, you know, she already had two children. She already had two children. The genius conductor, Leopold Stokowski, her second husband, he was 68 when his first child was born. But my point being that anyone interested in Hollywood history, her connections to Sinatra and Howard Hughes, and it was a very colorful life. No, no, it's, you know, it was, it's a rich determined, uh, you know, determined love. I mean, no question, but it reminded me a little bit of Mommy Dearest that Gloria Vanderbilt, since she was a young child, has learned how to play the injured doe in front of the camera. Like when you see her at the age of nine, you know, rushing into the, to the cars and everything else. I'm not saying that's disingenuous. I'm just saying she learned how that works. And I thought the entire time she was in front of the camera, she knew exactly how it would play and she knew exactly how to address things. And I just, I don't know. I didn't buy it. You bring up a very good point because she mentions in the documentary that the one thing she always wanted to be was an actress. And in this documentary, you can tell she loves being in front of the camera. I felt she was acting the whole time. Mm -hmm. And I think Anderson is a good son, a great guy. And he, you know, again, everybody should just know this is the surface. What I think is so tragic about the documentary is you realize that all the trauma she speaks of from her own childhood, where her mother and aunt, one of whom went on to found the Whitney Museum in New York City and was a sculptor, (laughs) were in this bitter custody battle. And yet she never knew the mother-father dynamic as a kid. Her father, of course, died when she was 18 months old. What's tragic is that you wonder what kind of mother she was to her own kids. So she mentions that one of them wants nothing to do with her. And that's been the case for decades. By the way, if you dig a little deeper into that, there's a whole backstory behind, uh, you know, Chris Stokowski and what why he wanted nothing to do with her, which is very unattractive. Mm -hmm. And certainly if you go Google it, you'll be able to find out about it. And um, she pretty much sort of dumped them for the newer, better family with, uh, with Anderson's father. So, and you know, the other thing I will say is, you know, this is a woman who was a husband in between there too. She married the genius director, Sidney Lumet. You know, this poor Stokowski boys, 
Okay, so they go through this terrible divorce where they're on the front pages of every paper, just like their mother was, by the Mm -hmm. way. Okay, then she has another husband who they're also close to, and then she dumps him and he walks out of their life. And then she goes with Mr. Cooper, and they basically show up occasionally, but there certainly wasn't an integration of them into their family. And I just, I don't understand that kind of mothering. Uh, Even if you haven't had great mothering yourself, there are a lot of people who have not had great mothering who certainly have risen above that. I think it's a very self-involved kind of approach. I I don't, I mean, look, I, I, I can't speak to how damaged Gloria Vanderbilt was and is and what that does to your ability to connect to other human beings. And clearly she's most comfortable when she's in her studio painting. And I totally get that. But I also feel that when you're going to do a documentary, you've got to ask those follow-up questions. Like, Mom, do you think you did anything to make Chris walk away? You know, that those these are the kinds of questions that can't be left out of a documentary that's supposed to document accurately her life. So what it does is it accurately documents every terrible thing that was ever done to her. But I don't think it ever addresses any of the things she's done. Well, I think it covered a lot of territory in 90 minutes because it has been such a long, colorful life. I was amazed when Anderson Cooper was asking her, for example, about her first husband, whom she married when she was only 17. And she said, well, you know, he'd been married before to this famous actress, and he was supposedly a Hollywood agent. But the first wife had died. And Anderson Cooper said, how? And she goes, well, she was killed. And many think that he did it. And Anderson Cooper kind of laughs. He's like, mom, you married a guy that might have killed his first wife? And she goes, well, I was 17. I was young. You know, I thought I could change him. Um, I was amazed that this kind of thing had never come up, supposedly, in any of their conversations with each other before. He seemed to have been amazed you know, at the, the people she dated and knew. And Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I find that as interesting as you know uh, yeah sure i mean that's the fluff and gossipy stuff about her life but you know she you know the the same creativity that her aunt had you know i mean her designs and and her you know gloria vanderbilt you know jeans all of that i mean she was very very savvy smart woman and i can see it in the face of that little girl running into the car you know but again even if it's only 90 minutes they certainly had enough time to cover all the territory of every single bad thing that was done to her it seems to me they could have also asked a couple of questions about why some of the things ended up the way they did for her in a in a tragic way all that said you know it's a great documentary because just the the blink of an eye into uh, into such an amazing historical family of our country. And the other thing is, it, she's now worth supposedly uh, around $200 million, and all of it she's told Anderson he doesn't get any. But, you know, Anderson makes his, his salary is $11 million a year. Well, this so, doesn't um, come up in the documentary, but they did co-author a book released alongside the documentary called The Rainbow Comes and Goes. A Mother and Son on Life, Love, and Loss. Anderson Cooper has said in other interviews that his parents, even when his father was still alive, they made it very clear to him that he was not going to get a trust fund, that he had to make his own money, which helped make him self-sufficient. The point I was going to make about that, though, is that what's interesting is, so she dies, you know, she her legacy right now is around 200 million. But if you look at what, at the turn of the last century, the family started with more money than in the treasury, mm-hmm. I, they haven't done so well. You know? <laughs> like, I mean, to us, it's a huge amount of money and whoa, whoa, whoa. But the, you know, the treasures that have been lost by some of these families in the generations that followed 
the generation is very interesting. The very opening line where you see Gloria Vanderbilt walking along the beach and you hear Anderson Cooper's voice. And he says, I've always thought of my mom as coming from a time and a place that doesn't exist anymore. I thought that was beautiful. Just hearing her accent, it, it sounds like she has come from a place that that no longer exists. Yeah, and he also said that he always felt like he was supposed to take care of her. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't want to know her. Do you? I thought 90 minutes with her in the documentary was the perfect (laughs) amount of time. 90 minutes with in the perfect amount of time. That's so true. And I'm glad I saw it. And I'm glad we brought it up because a lot of my friends are talking about it. They're They're really enjoying that sort of flashback too. And again, to see an historical family like that is pretty awesome. And Anderson Cooper, don't you just love him? You know, his eyes are very sympathetic. Something that I found heartbreaking was when Gloria Vanderbilt spoke about how she always wanted to be an actress because she thought in every part she played, she'd find a part of herself which might be able to make her feel better about herself. And it was interesting that when she was married to Sidney Lumet, that's what drove them apart is she wanted to be an actress and he wanted to have children. And I thought, wow, the the irony that it's the people, that it's Gloria Vanderbilt who wants to break into Hollywood. (laughs) Her lifespan has been such an interesting 92 years that it was an interesting document in terms of her Hollywood connections. And I, I... I do love her paintings and I love her By the way, I thought her art was really quite interesting. I would love to see an exhibit of it, mm-hmm. wouldn't you? Yeah. Yes. And something that she said I thought was so interesting. When the documentary first starts and she's holding that note that just has letters on it. And Anderson Cooper says, what is that? T-P-I-O-I-N-E-P. He's like, is this some kind of note? And she said she didn't want to misquote Faulkner. And she says that stands for the past. It isn't over. It's not even past. And then when Liz Garbus cuts to some of her paintings and you hear Gloria Vanderbilt saying that she reorganizes the past in her paintings and you see pictures that she's drawn of a little girl with her. Yeah, nanny, no, that's so true. Yeah. You know, I, th- I thought it was heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And her life was heartbreaking. And little Gloria, happy at last, did not stay happy you know (laughs) i wonder if barbara goldsmith would go back and change the title now (laughs) you know we always take a look into the rich and famous and there's always this perception by those without that those with have an easier time and surely money does buy freedom to you know make choices and to do things that you can't do without it but at the same Mm -hmm. time um i think this is such the greek tragedy of of what can happen when there's just too much and there's too many conflicts of interest around it. And in the end, you know, good for her that Anderson Cooper is a hardworking, you know, member of society. Stan Stokowski is a uh, garden designer and gardener, and he works hard. I mean, good for her that this next generation will maybe forego the issues of the last ones. So uh, we wish her well. We wish her well and hope she lives till 100. Yes. And Hollister, I know that you brought to our attention that Confirmation, the movie about the Anita yes, Hill hearings is coming that. out. Yes. Should we do that, that next is week? Another, it's another HBO show. Yeah. So for our listeners out there, if you're like me and you don't have HBO, I signed up for that 30-day free trial. So then you could watch the Nora Ephron documentary we talked about last week. You could watch Nothing Left Unsaid. If Divorce Would Hurry Up and Come Out, Sharon Horgan's new show with Sarah Jessica Parker, you could watch that. There's some good stuff coming out and some good things on the screen. So enjoy the week. Bye.